So either before or after the craziest feeling went through my body, you could just feel everything turn off. Kind of came to, everybody was already around me. My visor was smashed over my goggles, so I couldn't really see what was happening. I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't move anything. First thing I said when I woke up, though, is don't touch me, because I knew something was real bad. I'm Matt Hansen, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. And if you like this podcast, please leave us a review. It's one of the best ways to help other people find the fine line so that we can continue to bring you new episodes that seek to positively shift backcountry culture. And thanks for listening. This episode of The Fine Line is brought to you by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety and the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located in the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. For more information on Roadhouse and its town square pub and eatery, visit roadhousebrewery.com. On February 6, 2022, Tanner Ellis headed out snowmobiling on Togety Pass, a vast wintry landscape that sits at the crossroads of some of the wildest country in the United States. Ellis is 23 and lives in Elk River, Minnesota. He'd made the long drive out to Wyoming with a group of friends to begin a week-long trip of riding their sleds across Togety. Located about 55 miles northeast of Jackson, Togety Pass has become a popular destination among snowmobilers due to its varied terrain, network of trails, two mountain lodges, and remote setting. Straddling the Continental Divide, the area is rimmed by steep rocky peaks of the southern Absorca mountain range, and when the sun is shining, offers some of the most incredible views of Jackson Hole and the Tetons you'll ever see. But the view Ellis ended up getting was not what he expected. After trying a trick called a re-entry, where you thrust your sled into a wheelie before whipping it back around 180 degrees and landing in the same track the other direction, the sled crashed on top of him. The impact fractured his C5 vertebrae, broke his tibia plateau, and left him with concussion. When the call came in to Teton County Search and Rescue, the report was that the patient could not feel his arms or legs. It was one of 14 callouts for snowmobilers this winter in Teton County, compared to 18 for skiers and snowboarders. That follows the general trends for our area, with snowmobilers making up just over a third of all winter callouts. Skiers and snowboarders, meanwhile, still have the most callouts from year to year, and as a category, have the single highest percentage of rescues, no matter the season, over the last 10 years. In this episode, Ellis opens up about what happened. Well, Teton County Search and Rescue volunteers, Dr. A.J. Wheeler and Ryan Combs, share their views on how the team responds to life-threatening injuries in a remote location. I'm Tanner Ellis. I live in Elk River, Minnesota. I'm 23 years old, and I am an apprentice line worker. Went to one year of school for it, and I'm on my fourth year now. I know a little bit of everything. We have commercial hookups and new homes, new developments, build line, put everything underground too. Tell us about your background as a as a snowmobiler. How how'd you get started in it? 
and how much of it is part of your life? My background would be uh, started on a little kitty cat uh, in the backyard. So probably four or five years old. I've loved it ever since. Started on old sleds and stuff. Once I finally got old enough to buy my own, got into that as heavy as I could get. Little two place, run around wherever, chase snow every weekend. Last year, I think I only missed two weekends out of all. It's my biggest passion for sure. Wait and watch the weather all year long. <laughs> and where do you like to do most of your snowmobiling? Is that locally or do you travel or? It started out locally. A lot of trails around here because I wasn't old enough to even drive to bring myself anywhere. But now, as of lately, I either go to the UP, Michigan, or out west towards you guys. Are you mostly cross-country? Do you do tricks? Are you freestyle? Do you like powder riding? Kind of what's your what's your preference there? What's your style? Used to be heavy into just trail riding. Now it's all backcountry, mountains, stuff like that, riding through the trees. And what kind of snowmobile do you currently have? I actually have two snowmobiles. One's a Polaris race sled. That one's a 2019. And then I got a that 2021 Chaos 850, 155. That's what ended up being in the accident with me. But only two of the six of us have been to Togarty before that. We've been out to Island Park and Montana before that more than once. We go out west one to two times a year, and this time everybody said, hey, let's try Togarty out, load the trailer up, and let's go. For me, it was kind of here in, here in no man's land there. All you got is the lodge, and that's about it. I've never came into something like that before. Riding in Montana and stuff, there's little towns and everything, but Togody, you're kind of, you're out there. Togody Pass, as Tanner mentioned, is a fairly remote area. There's not a whole lot of infrastructure up there. My name is Ryan Combs. I have been a volunteer on Teton County Search and Rescue for 12 years. I uh, live here in Jackson with my wife and two daughters. And when I'm not being a dad, I work in finance. The pass itself is about 9,700 feet and has a lot of areas, a lot of trails built out for snowmobiling adventures where people can stick to trails or from those trails access a lot of backcountry terrain that would give you, you know, a variety of riding experiences that people from, you know, fairly novice to fairly advanced riders can challenge themselves really well. Yeah, the trail system's named with, with just a, a letter system. So there's the C, C, D, X, and uh, are maintained and groomed throughout the, the winter. Although I think the main attraction for people that tend to come to Togadi is to use that trail system to access backcountry deep powder, which is, tends to be what people really are looking for when they, when they come up to Togadi to go snowmobiling. Yeah, I am uh, Dr. A.J. Wheeler and been on Teton County Search and Rescue for almost 15 years now work as a local emergency physician here at St. John's Health Medical Center. An additional hat is being the medical advisor for the uh, board of advisors for Teton County SAR, who uh, that's the group that kind of initiates responses and, and organizes the, the team as we're heading out into, into the field. Hey, Tanner. Hey. It's good to hear your voice again. <laughs> Thanks. Just want to say thank you to you guys for everything you did. Absolutely. I'm uh Super psyched that we're able to do something like this. I'm excited to hear your, your recollections. Yeah, for sure. When Ellis and his friends 
checked into Togedy Mountain Lodge on Saturday night, February 5th. They found a full house, all 54 cabins occupied, theirs especially so. We got there on a Saturday night, and we were crammed in one lodge. Two guys on a bed, one guy on a futon, and another guy on a couch. On Sunday morning, they let the day awaken them. No alarm clock necessary. Stepping outside their cabin, they found crystal clear skies and hardly any wind. It was probably mid-30s out, not a cloud in the sky. There wasn't any fresh snow for almost a month. We just run the trail a little bit, hop off where it looked like it'd be fun to pull up the hill. We did that two, three spots, and then we started jumping up and down hills, getting higher and higher. And then it was just this perfect spot to do a, what I tried to do, I guess, a re-entry it's called. And two buddies kept rolling, and then all of a sudden I saw them turn around and come back. Four of us were sitting where, right before where they went, and they came back and said how big of a slide there was right there previously so we were kind of just sitting there talking about what we were going to do and stuff like that for equipment we carry saws lighters we all have bca radios on our backpacks avalanche bags beacons plenty of water and food one guy always has a first aid kit on him just different stuff like that extra layers always have extra goggles and gloves we carry just cell phones but after this last incident i'm guessing we're gonna purchase a satellite phone or two. We were just slowly climbing up mountains, trying to get across, see where it opened up. A couple of us saw the hill, I pointed at it, because everybody has their tunnels cut except me, so they're supposed to be able to do the cool stuff with them cut. The tunnel on a snowmobile refers to the large structural chassis that covers the track. Think of the seat, the footrails, and anything on the back of the sled. That's the tunnel. In recent years, people have started cutting the length of their tunnels in order to improve the sled's maneuverability, especially in deep snow. Having a shorter tunnel allows you to make sharper turns and do more tricks, but it also decreases overall stability. And when you get stuck, it can make you more stuck. Nowadays, snowmobile manufacturers sell sleds that already have tapered or shorter tunnels. Elsa's sled wasn't, and he didn't want to modify it because it was basically brand new, with only 200 miles on it. I was like, well, I guess I'll try and do it, because everybody told me I needed my tunnel cut, and I didn't want to cut it. So I did it the first time, and then everybody's like, oh, no way. So then the phones come out, of course. So then Kodak Courage went to do it again, started wheeling up the hill like the last time, and went to throw my weight, and the sled didn't move. sled ended up grabbing a log, and it threw it straight up, and all I could really do was... fall off the sled and pretty much came back and landed right on top of me. So when it landed on top of me, it kind of, I don't know if it was before or after, but I got knocked out from it. So either before or after, the craziest feeling went through my body. You could just feel everything turn off. Kind of came to, everybody was already around me. My visor was smashed over my goggles, so I couldn't really see what was happening. I couldn't feel anything, I couldn't move anything. First thing I said when I woke up though, is don't touch me. I knew something was real bad and I've always heard don't touch a person if they broke their neck or back and then second thing I said was I I chipped my tooth you know kind of giggled a little bit our sense of humor is kind of different than most groups I'd say there's always jokes going around do you remember as you woke up kind of like what your position was or were you laying on your back were you on your side I was kind of on my side my helmet 
was just above the snow. I couldn't really see anything else. My sled was right next to me. The boys said that my legs were all tangled up in the handlebars. Sled and I were both about half buried with snow. Your group at some point definitely worked on you a little bit because that is not how we found you when we got there. Right. I was awake for all that. They were trying to figure out what they were going to do. And I said, well, we got to get help. You guys got to move me so my head's not downhill. So they worked on the sled. They got the sled off me, got my legs untangled. And I said, I still can't feel anything. If you guys hold my head still, can you guys twist me down the hill? So my one buddy kind of just held on to my head, held me straight. And the other ones helped me, just swung me around. So my legs were then facing downhill. Cell phone service up at Togedy is spotty at best. Without being able to use their phones, two of Ellis's friends rode back to Togedy Mountain Lodge to call for help. They were about six miles or a 20-minute ride out from the trailhead. That's when Teton County Search and Rescue first got the call. You know, your, your, your buddies rode out to, to the lodge and uh, made contact with the Togedy guides, which is not uncommon. A lot of the times we either get calls from the Togedy guides themselves reporting that, you know, somebody came into the shop telling tell them there was an accident. Uh, or we call them and say, hey, we just, somebody just called us and said they're hurt, you know, in lo- this location. Can you guys go check it out for us? Um, so we work pretty closely with the guides uh, over the winter. And uh, so your buddies called 911 and uh, our dispatchers started to collect information, but didn't have a location for where you were. Kind of a general area. We uh, knew what, what trails you had gone on. There's like a, a pretty large kind of meadow close by. Um, so we had a description of, of where you were, but didn't have that location. And so we actually asked the guides at that point, you know, if they would be able to send somebody up there and, and get a GPS point. You can imagine, you know, knowing that we're probably responding in the helicopter at this point, that uh, there are a lot of people snowmobiling up there. So when you're looking for a snowmobile group in an area that's frequented, it can be it can be hard to narrow down who exactly you're, you're looking for. So that that information was invaluable to us that the, the guides were able to send one of their guides out with a, uh, an in-reach device that allows them to communicate two ways, but also can give them uh, their, their location. And that's how we actually found the spot that you were in. So the dispatch gets the 911 call and uh, quickly realizes this is in the backcountry. So it's not uh, an ambulance call. It's a, it's a search and rescue call. And they uh, page the our search and rescue board, uh, so there's a group of about seven of us that get that initial call. We all have our, our ringtones customized now so that, you know, when the SAR, SAR ring goes off, everybody knows exactly what it is. I was basically at home. I mean, it was about noon when the call came out, you know, minding my own business on a, on a day off. And I uh, hear my phone go off. It's like, oh, that's that's a SAR call. The page was SAR board members call in for an injured snowmobiler on Tokety Pass. That uh, starts off the process where we all call into a, kind of a party line, phone line, where we can all talk, and dispatch gets in there and gives us the information that they have. We immediately, uh, we have some mapping programs and stuff, so we immediately start trying to like map out where, where things are and, and decide, you know, based off of the information we're given, whether or not we need to call the team out. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're able to just kind of, you know, call somebody and tell them you're not as lost as you think and, and walk them out. But dispatch definitely was able to relay to us that, you know, the, the RPs, the reporting party, the, the guys that rode out had said that their buddy got knocked out, couldn't move his arms and legs. That sounds bad right off the bat. I think within five minutes of the board page, 
dispatch had already sent out the, the page for the team. Like it was really obvious at this point, like this was a rescue. This was something we were going to need the team to, to respond to. So as that call came in and it was very clear that we were going to need an entire team page, I started gathering my things and was out the door fairly quickly. When I showed up at the hangar, we didn't have many people there. You know, we're a volunteer team. Everybody's, you know, available as they can be, but sometimes you're, you're not available. So initially there were, there was a small group of us that showed up and we looked at each other and said, you know, this is, this is, this is the crew that's going to be jumping on the helicopter and, and going up trying to help. And so we kind of made a plan. We were moving, I think in a, in a quick fashion, but not, not overly fast. You know, slow sometimes is your best method uh, to make sure you're not missing steps and that you're maintaining a level of safety. But we knew that we needed to get uh, going quickly to to help. And so uh, our goal was to kind of assess what we needed for this mission and uh, get out the door as quickly as we could. What was going through my mind was that uh, definitely worried about a spinal cord injury, given that initial report that that we had, that the helicopter was really going to be the right tool to get Tanner out of there. But we didn't know the terrain that we were going into. We had a, a an area... And that area was anything from a, a large meadow where we could have landed the helicopter to rolling terrain to some pretty steep gullies. We were trying to be prepared for everything. We gear up with our normal medical gear, which includes packaging gear, a, a vacuum mattress. It's, it's like a reverse beanbag that's uh, body length, and you can suck the air out of it. And the beanbag actually gets rigid at that point, and so you can put somebody on that and mold it to them and then transport them. And then we have, you know, pain medications, pretty much an ambulance type full of, of medical gear that we try to pack into the helicopter. There's another piece of equipment that you guys brought, your skis? We always bring our skis and, and what we call our 24-hour packs. Um, so our, our backpacks that we carry, our uh, avalanche airbag packs, because we're often going into avalanche terrain when there have been avalanches. They're stuffed full of enough gear that we consider ourselves self-sufficient in the backcountry for 24 hours. And we take skis and skins so that we can move in that terrain. And also, if the helicopter does break down or can't come back and get us, we're on our own and, and getting out of the backcountry on our own. It's a lot to think about before you go out into the field. Yeah, I think one of the main things we do as SAR members is pack and repack our gear. I don't know, Ryan, how it is for you. Absolutely. I mean, the each mission has a slightly different characteristic to it. And so the things that you would need to bring constantly shifts. And I'm always unpacking, repacking to make sure I have the equipment that would be appropriate for that day. One of the things that, you know, is always important is in going through all your equipment, making sure it's functional, making sure it still works, making sure that whatever you had in there from a prior uh, mission, you know, that that's still there. Because too often, you pull something out, you do something during trainings or otherwise, and you forget that you've done it. Um, so I, I think it's just a check and recheck every time. The last thing you want to do is be out in the middle of the backcountry and not have what you need. By the time Ellis's two friends made it back to him with some local guides, he was starting to get some feeling in his toes and feet. Definitely a good sign, but nowhere out of the woods. So in your extremities, were you feeling any any feeling at all? By the time my two buddies came back with the guides, I was able to move my toes and my feet and my legs a little bit. And I slowly started getting feeling back. And it came from my feet all the way up. I couldn't move my arms at all. I wasn't strong enough to move my arms or my hands. 
hands were almost closed shut, but I could move my feet and toes. One question I have, I was just looking at the timeline from the moment we received the page from dispatch from 911. It was about an, uh, a little under an hour before we lifted off in the helicopter to come towards you. And then it looks like it's roughly just over two hours total before we were on scene with you. Did it feel like it took a long time for us to get there? Or what was your experience in terms of waiting for us to get there? I don't think it felt like a long time until the last, until you heard the chopper coming. At that point, I had to, I had to pee pretty bad. I was uncomfortable. I'm a guy who can't sit still in the first place. I wasn't in too much pain until I turned a little wrong or whatever. Then you could feel it in my neck. My leg hurt a little bit like I was bruised. I ended up being broken, but that was good until I got uncomfortable. As we were flying in to locate you, as AJ mentioned, we had coordinates that gave us your location, but sometimes those coordinates can be inexact or, or a little off. And as we circled in, there was another group uh, waving their arms at us and excited. I think it was a completely unrelated party who got their snowmobile stuck and they were waving at us. And for a flash, we thought, this is our rescue party. So we circled around and quickly realized it wasn't you all, but it didn't take us long to locate you after that and um, kind of make a plan as to how we were going to land the helicopter and get down and do an assessment. You know, once we were at the hangar, we kind of got the crew identified. So we've got our pilot. Um, and then we had four SAR members from Teton County search and rescue all loaded into the helicopter. We do a bunch of checks and safety things before we, we take off, but those went pretty smoothly. And uh, we, t we took off. Still needed to go pick up uh, Case Martin, who was our, our Grand Teton National Park uh, member who was going to be our spotter should we need him. So our initial stop was Grand Teton National Park. So we, we flew up there um, and we're able to fly in to a location where we could land and, and picked up Case, picked back up and started back up towards Togety, which is, you know, while it's an almost an hour drive, it's like a 20 minute flight. On the way up there, we're talking through our plans. The, the terrain you guys were in was, was pretty gnarly. There were some pretty deep gullies below where you were. And uh, we actually saw the same avalanches that you guys had, I think, pointed out there. So there had been some recent ac avalanche activity that had gone given our snowpack for the winter down to the, basically the ground. Then you guys were kind of above that. We located your group. It was pretty obvious it was you once we when we found them. And uh, you guys were in a little bit of a meadow. You were kind of on the slope next to that meadow with uh, with trees there. It was just kind of broken meadows along the slope of the of the mountain that you guys were on. We kind of flew over and circled back once looking at the terrain. It looked like we could land the helicopter at your location, but you guys kind of, this, your snowmobiles and stuff were down below in the meadow, um, and it would have would have been tight, and plus, you know, landing the helicopter in there and then blows the snow and gear and everything around, so we're not sure what gear was maybe loose, and so we were actually able to fly just above you. There was a, a little bit larger meadow, nothing around. We chose to fly in and land in the snow above you guys, maybe 100 yards. We landed, three of us got out. Um, we decided to leave two people with the ship initially, clicked into our skis, grabbed the gear with it that we needed. Um, so we're, we've got our 24-hour packs and the medical gear that we're carrying. You know, just skied the short slope right down to, to where you were. And another advantage to landing above you, Tanner, I don't know if you all were wondering why we were landing up there. It's often the case that we're concerned that people on the ground will start approaching the ship. 
start approaching the helicopter, which can be dangerous. And so there's not a way for us to communicate that to everyone on the ground, in addition to what AJ mentioned, which is there may be items that could blow around from the rotors that could um, present a hazard. So we want to minimize that to the degree possible, but making sure that everybody stayed in their position and that nobody additionally was put in harm's way. So uh, landing above allowed us to ski down to you, assess, get the scene secured so that then the helicopter could come back to uh, airlift you. And at that point, they started saying, somebody hop on, get the sleds out of here. And then I don't know who it was, but they told us to try and pack down where we helicopter is going to land. But yeah, I was very, just very happy and thankful to see them coming down the mountain with their huge packs on. And I came right in and I can remember clicking out of my skis, uh, you know, a few feet from you. Your group had done a great job. It looked like it trying to insulate you. You had one of your buddies sitting at the head, supporting your head a little bit. Uh, you seem to be in, in pretty good spirit. I was very impressed. I introduced myself, kind of said hello, and we uh, walked through that, that initial assessment. The, the Togety guides had done a pretty thorough assessment, so it didn't feel like we had to repeat everything. Making sure the ABCs, the airway, breathing, circulation was intact, and then focused in on... Uh, you know, what we knew was part of the problem, which was the deficit, the, the D in our mnemonic, you know, having you move your arms and legs so that we, we had an idea of, of where we were uh, once we got there. We also pulled out, we have blankets that are giant hand warmers, basically, uh, to make sure that he's not getting too cold. So kind of getting all those things ready uh, as AJ was going through his assessment and saying, you know, what do we need to transport him securely in the safest way that we don't do any additional damage in terms of uh, his spine precautions and, and other things that he might be faced with that we, we can't see right now. So initially, the helicopter remained above us on that shelf. What they did while they were up there and we were down below with the patient was reconfigure the helicopter to accommodate a patient. So they take out seats, put a platter in that the patient can lay on so we can put him in the ship, and then have him airlifted to uh, a spot that is predetermined where the ambulance is waiting. So while they were doing that reconfiguring the ship, we're getting the patient ready. And then at the right moment, as time progressed, we let the ship know that we were ready to transport the patient. And then we coordinate the ship coming in, landing on scene in the most convenient way possible that's still safe that allows us to then uh, get Tanner to definitive care. Yeah, I, th I think the process really... Took us about 15 minutes, maybe 20. We got down there. Your, your buddy was holding your head, Tanner. I don't know if you remember, but your position of comfort seemed to be with your your neck flexed forward a little bit. And your your buddy actually kind of had his, like a pack, and I think maybe his leg under your head, supporting your head. So after the kind of the initial assessment we did, I was kind of trying to take that role over of assessing your head and neck and then supporting it. Ideally, we're going to put everybody in what we call anatomical position. You know, think about just lying flat on your back on the floor, you know, everything kind of nice and aligned. Um, it was pretty clear your neck was not in that position. I was like, oh, we'll give this a try and see if it causes any discomfort and see if we can't just realign your neck with the rest of your body. That was a firm no on your end. I, th I remember like trying to move your head a little bit and you're like, ow, that hurts. I was like, oh, okay. I think Think we're not going to do that. Throughout this entire time until TC SAR took over, Ellis's friend Parker Kivley had been stabilizing his head for about two hours. The two live about five houses apart from one another in Elk River. They hang out a lot and have been riding snowmobiles together for about four years. And you really only had a 
a small margin of where you wanted your head and neck that wasn't painful for you. And one of the things I was nice and working in the winter and in the snow, um, it just gives us that medium to, to work with. So Galen Park, one of the other members that was with us, skied down. So we had four SAR uh, members on scene there with you. And uh, while I was kind of focused on you, the, the other guys were able to like dig out a platform just kind of below you or next to you. We put that, laid that vacuum mattress out there so that it was almost like a, a straight slide sideways to be able to just get you pretty easily onto that vacuum mattress and centered where we, where we needed you. And I felt like that went pretty smoothly. And then we, uh, then we can take that mattress and, and conf- you know, it's a, it's a beanbag. So we were able to kind of form it around you. And I was able to actually bend it into the position where it was really supporting your head in the, in the spot that you liked it. And then we vacuumed it out at that point. And uh, it seemed at that point, like you were pretty content. Yeah, I'd say so at that point. Yeah. I remember getting slid to the left of me and putting in that thing and I was good. And then you guys started carrying me down the hill. That was a little uncomfortable, but other than that, yeah, I was good. Bear, the ambulance, everything, except for when the helicopter is landing. It pretty much took my breath away. And I'm used to that because I have pretty bad asthma, I guess, from when I was playing sports and stuff. And that's kind of what it reminded me, like, uh, when all that snow and air was getting thrown at me, is just trying not to panic and trying to keep breathing. That was gnarly, all that air and snow. The ship was able to land very close, which is a best-case scenario in terms of Tanner's comfort and us able to get him to, you know, an ambulance as quick as possible. Tanner, one thing that I think through sometimes is if we didn't have the ability to utilize the helicopter and we had to do this rescue on the ground, I just wonder what the outcome would have been. Not as smooth a ride for you to be taken out on in a toboggan or some other mechanism. Do you think you would have been able to, to do that I guess, you know, in, in a positive frame of mind, I, I just look at the use of our helicopter and say, gosh, that was one instance where it really served its purpose. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if there would have been another way off, really. I couldn't imagine riding down the mountain in a toboggan. That would have been very painful and cold and helicopter. I don't know. Best thing ever. Yeah, I definitely think the helicopter made a difference in this particular mission. It would have been tough. The location you were in, we definitely could have got snowmobiles in there. We have a, a slim, probably a mountain toboggan that would have been the, the go-to for you initially just to try and drag a toboggan through that terrain. That's what the they would have had to bring it up there. Um, then we have a trail toboggan that's actually a little bit more enclosed. It would not have been an ideal way to get you out of there. And uh, I definitely would have worried that it, even with everything we tried to do, that it could have potentially made your, your injury worse. So I was really glad, as like you said, that the weather was cooperating with us and that the, the helicopter was able to respond to, to right where you were. And uh, we basically opened the door to the helicopter and uh, picked that vacuum mattress up and just slid you straight in there. And then uh, Anna DeSanto uh, was one of our uh, SAR members who'd stayed with the pilot, helping to kind of convert the ship over and everything was, was in there. And so I got in the helicopter with her. You know, we took seats out to accommodate the platter, the spot that you were in. So we actually left three people behind and then uh, were able to, to pick up. And it was a pretty short flight, probably five, seven minutes over to uh, the highway where they had uh, closed down one of the turnoffs and the ambulance was waiting for you. 
It was definitely short. All I could really see was when we picked up the tops of the trees and then the opposite side, you could see some of the mountains over there too. It wasn't too long and then uh, we landed and I couldn't really see anything then and I just got loaded into the ambulance. Couldn't tell you where we were or anything. I just got moved out of there, got put on a stretcher and into the back of the ambulance. I didn't really see anything during that. It was not looking good at first, the way they were talking about my injuries. They weren't really worried about the leg. It was just the neck. And I guess my parents got told, they got a call, you know, they didn't know what was going on. Don't expect anything less than a wheelchair. So they all hopped in the truck. It was faster to drive out than to fly out. So they were there by the time I got out of surgery. But anyways, I fractured my C5. And I had a tibia plateau fracture in my left leg and a concussion. I ended up in emergency surgery Monday morning. I don't know how long that lasted or anything, but that was successful, very successful. So I was in a neck brace and a leg brace for six weeks. I'm actually out of both already. I'm walking on both feet. Could do everything except go to work, waiting to hear back on that. I'll have to see my a neck surgeon every so many months concussions doing good legs doing real good but yeah i go to the gym every day and everything's healing very well only downside right now is uh left hand's numb right hands three of the fingers are numb in that one then if i look down too far i get like like lightning bolts running through from my back all the way down to the bottom of my feet but all in all i'm doing very well with what happened that uh, that sounds like an amazing recovery to me. I'm so happy to hear you say that that you've recovered so well. Yeah, laying there, I don't know what day it was in the ICU, but uh, we're going to see if you can walk today is what they told me. And I said, <laughs> I'm walking. There's no way I'm going to lay here, you know. Took my arms and hands quite a while to bounce back. I'm still pretty weak. I'm not as weak as I think I am, but I'm definitely not where I was before it happened the doctors say I can only lift 15 pounds right now I can definitely lift more than that but that's what they say for the injury and stuff I'm not not allowed to lift over 15. But Tanner I know you can't see me right now but I'm I'm smiling because I just think of all the other alternative outcomes that could have taken place here and while you're still dealing with some things um gosh it's so good to hear you're doing as well as you are, and I hope that you continue to improve and continue your recovery. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And it's from the help from you guys. It's just awesome. Hoping to be back to work by mid-June. We'll see if that happens. That's my goal. I'm hoping to ride next year. Sled. They said no toys for six months. I'm hoping to be on the Harley before it snows here. So we'll see what happens. I used to be, you know, well, whatever. You can try that out. Not really worrying about anything. It's just you're having fun, doing whatever you want, trying to get videos or pictures that look cool. I just am hoping I won't be afraid. Just get back where I was. Just not doing anything crazy anymore. I guess that's what I learned from it. You're not indestructible. I've heard that a lot from other people who had accidents. You don't think about it until it happens to you, I guess. My biggest passion is snowmobiling, but right behind that is actually work. I love going to work every day and it sucks i go to the shop probably two times a week say hi everybody and stuff like that you see them out working around town in the bucket trucks 
don't know. It's just, <laughs> I want to get back to work before anything. I guess it doesn't matter to me if I snowmobile next year or not. I just want to get back to work, get back in the swing of things. Snowmobiling probably won't be the same anymore, but I'll probably still get the enjoyment out of it. I just will sit back and watch more than anything now, I'm guessing. Thank you for listening to The Fine Line. I'm Matt Hansen. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Jackson Hole backcountry. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.